It's always a great privilege for me to uh, come back to, uh, to this congregation. I can remember years ago when this congregation consisted of just a few folks gathered around a, a table trying to figure out how to organize a new church in this community. And it was one of the, one of the singular privileges of my life uh, to, having, to uh, having gotten to know the leaders at that point and uh, the men and women who had such a heart to establish a new church in this community. And every time I come back, first of all, so many of those folks aren't here now. Uh, they've, a number of them have gone to be with the Lord, and, uh, and yet so many new faces. And that is a great encouragement to me just to see uh, each of you here this morning. So I, uh, I'm privileged to be here and to be a part of this time of worship. Uh, you'll notice on the screen that uh, there's a resource that I wanted to recommend to you before we start our study. And it's a resource called Your Sorrow Will Turn to Joy. If you go on to John Piper's website, which is desiringgod.org, you can download uh, that free uh, guide. And there are morning and evening devotions for each day of this week leading up to Easter Sunday. And as you see there, 11 different pastors and scholars uh, came together to put together uh, a great resource just to, to align your heart with, uh, with what's happening in the life of Jesus as uh, he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and uh, then was arrested on Thursday night and uh, crucified and resurrected on Sunday morning. So just a great resource for you, and it's, uh, it's free. And uh, you will benefit by just uh, kind of tuning your heart to what is happening as Jesus goes into Jerusalem and uh, spends this week in preparation for his death. So I just encourage you to, to look at that. There are a number of ways to, uh, to consider the, uh, the whole theme of Palm Sunday, of uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And uh, the next slide is... Uh, is a poem, and uh, it's by G.K. Chesterton. I've been studying the life of G.K. Chesterton in the early 1900s. He was a British journalist and uh, editorial writer, a brilliant man, uh, read some 10,000 novels in his life and could remember easily the characters and the themes of each of those novels. That just... Uh, Gives you some indication of his gray matter. He was a, a brilliant man, and he was a ferocious advocate of Orthodox Christianity. He would debate anyone who was, who was uh, determined to uh, say anything detracting from the Orthodox Christian faith. Uh, as he thought about Palm Sunday, he uh, he wrote a poem about a donkey. And uh, as you uh, as you look at these words. Uh, one of the realizations is uh, this donkey had a very poor self-image. Uh, he was struggling to just uh, come to grips with his identity. Uh, when fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, 
of ancient crooked will. Starve, scourge, deride me. I am dumb. I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also, I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet. There was the shout about my ears and palms beneath my feet. So Chesterton, when he read the story of, uh, of Palm Sunday, he focused in on the donkey. Well, we're going we're gonna to pass by that this morning and go on to other, other reflection, although I'm sure there's uh, a lot that still could be said about the donkey. Um, in the introduction to, uh, to the uh, resource that I just mentioned to you a moment ago, uh, we read these words. In one sense, there's nothing special about Holy Week. Just another sequence of eight days each spring. Nothing is intrinsically holy about this Sunday to Sunday that moves around the calendar each year. We have no mandate from Jesus or from his apostles to mark these days for practical observance. Marking Holy Week is not an obligation, but it is an opportunity. It's a chance to walk with the church throughout time and through the world as she walks with her bridegroom through the most important week in the history of the world. It is a chance to focus our minds on and seek to intensify our affections for the most important and timeless realities. It could even be said that, of all, the old, that the, all of the Old Testament anticipates this week and the rest of the New Testament reflects it in theology and practical living. I was a little bit taken aback when I realized that uh, if you look at the Gospels, there are 89 chapters in the four Gospels. And of those 89 chapters, 30 of those chapters focus on this one week in the life of Christ. That's how central uh, the message of this week is. Pretty astounding that a third of the gospel, the biographies of Jesus, would, uh, would, would hyper-focus on, uh, on just a few days at the end of his life. And yet those, those days were uh, critically important to your life and to mine. And so I want to go through a little chronology of, uh, of Palm Sunday just to get a, a context for what we're looking at. And I, I've kind of harmonized uh, the gospel accounts. And we'll look at, uh, at the things that transpired, particularly on, uh, on Palm Sunday. Uh, what we find out from the gospels is that uh, Jesus arrived in Bethany, uh, Bethany was a, a little village just east of Jerusalem, uh, and Jesus arrived there in Bethany. He'd been there before. Uh, he had very close friends. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived in Bethany, and they were close friends of Jesus's, and he had spent time with them on previous occasions. And so six days before the Passover, in 32 AD, the Passover was on a Friday. So if you begin to back up a bit, it would have been on Saturday before the Passover, that Jesus uh, arrived in Bethany. And, uh, and during an evening meal there in Bethany on, uh, on Saturday afternoon, um, Mary anointed Jesus' head and his feet in preparation for his burial. Um, it's interesting in the Gospels, the women seem to get it and the men don't. And as you read through this whole section of Scripture, time after time, 
It's the women who have, uh, have just insight and intuitive sense of, of the, the drama that is, is transpiring. And, and, the, and the guys are kind of clueless. <laughs> I won't go on to make a whole lot of application from that point, but uh, that's one of the implications here for sure. Um, but that meal uh, was a meal at which uh, Lazarus was present. It was in the home of Simon the leper. We don't know much about Simon, really, other than uh, the, the indication that he had previously been a leper, undoubtedly a leper that Jesus had healed. And so Jesus avails himself of the hospitality of Simon the leper and stays in his home. And actually, Jesus will leave Bethany, go into Jerusalem, come back to Bethany, leave and go into Jerusalem between Saturday and Thursday night when he's arrested. Each evening, he'll go back to Bethany, spend the night in Simon the leper's home, and then go back into the city and re-engage in the things that that took up the last week of his life. But uh, Sunday, the next day, of course, Saturday was a Sabbath day for the Jews. And so the next day, Sunday, is the day that Jesus travels from Bethany into Jerusalem. And that's what we designate as Palm Sunday. And as he left Bethany, he arrived at the Mount of Olives. Um, The Mount of Olives was a a series of gentle slopes. We've got a picture of that, I think, coming up next. Uh, It was a series of gentle slopes uh, just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it offered a a panoramic view of the city. And you can, uh, this is a modern picture of the city, but you can have a sense of Jesus poised on the Mount of Olives and being able to look over the the city of Jerusalem. And so uh, as he... As he arrived at the Mount of Olives and was about to uh, take the road that descended from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, uh, a number of things, things happened. One, one thing that I just put on the top of that is that as he, uh, as he viewed the city of Jerusalem, uh, he began to weep over the city in anticipation of what he knew would be a rejection of him uh, by the Jewish people. And so he, uh, he found himself on, on the Mount of uh, Olives. And uh, as, or, as has already been mentioned, one of the things that he did um, on that Sunday as he is there on the Mount of Olives and as he's looking over this view, uh, in the next slide I, I mentioned that, uh, that he sends two of his disciples into a town, we don't know the name of that town, probably Bethpage, but we don't know for sure, uh, to acquire transportation for him in his descent from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. And that, uh, that transportation uh, is, is, is representative of the nature of uh, who he is presenting himself to the Jewish people as. Uh, very humble, um, no pomp and circumstance particularly, didn't ride in on some white steed. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't uh, going to enter the city as, as a, uh, a Roman uh, a warrior would or, or a king. He was entering certainly as a king, but as a servant king. So he... Uh, 
He sends for his, his transportation, a donkey. And uh, as a large crowd gathers, they begin to uh, proclaim Jesus as their king, as their Messiah. And as you read the passages, all of the uh, descriptives in the Gospels, in the four Gospels of this event, um, indicate that the, the vocabulary that was being used by those who had gathered now to, uh, as Jesus' followers to, uh, to worship him, all of the vocabulary was uh, both uh, uh, politically revolutionary. He was being proclaimed as a king who had a kingdom, but it was also, uh, it was also recognizing his true identity as the Messiah, the one who had been anticipated and who was going to come. And, of course, as you read the rest of the, of the narratives, you find that uh, there was a bit of, a, uh, of a, an adjustment needed, that needed to be made in their thinking because they, as they celebrated him as a king and as a messiah, uh, were anticipating that he would do something in this particular uh, entrance into the city that he will do when he returns, and that is that he would somehow... Uh, overpower the Roman government and reestablish Israel in a place of, uh, of centrality in the world and uh, free of oppression. But that wasn't his mission, as we know. He was coming to die. And that was uh, something that uh, his followers would come to grips with only in time. But uh, they, were, uh, they were gathering to worship. As I mentioned, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because of the imminent rejection that he knows is about to transpire of him as their Messiah. And then uh, Jesus predicts something in, in, uh, in Luke chapter 19. Uh, this is what he says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And, there will not, uh, leave, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. To understand what Jesus was saying there, uh, you need to go back to Daniel chapter 9 and to read that uh, passage that predicts the very events that are transpiring in the life of Christ at this moment. But he, uh, he talks about and predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Interestingly, uh, that event occurred... Uh, just a matter of uh, 38 years later, the Roman government under Titus uh, surrounded the city of Jerusalem to, to put down a rebellion. And as they surrounded the city, the, uh, the resistance of the Jewish people was so tenacious that by the time the Romans were able to break through the walls and enter the city of Jerusalem... 
they just pillaged the place and they set the, uh, the whole city on fire. And one of the things they did was to set the temple on fire. And as that fire burned, uh, the gold and the other precious metallics uh, melted and, and wedged itself down through the masonry of the temple. Uh, Josephus, who was a, uh, a Jew but a Roman historian, later recounted how the, uh, the temple was taken apart literally brick by brick to get at the metallics that had melted into the masonry of the temple. And so in literal fact, there was not one stone left on top of another. The uh, fulfillment of, uh, of the prophecy of Daniel 9 and the, the uh, incredible preciseness with which Jesus described the attack of, of the Roman legions in 70 AD, the whole idea of barricading was, uh, was a, a part of their military strategy. But all of that... Uh, was uh, was fulfilled minutely and uh, in very singular ways as uh, what Jesus described actually transpired. They, the Jews should have known that this was the day that the Messiah would ride into the rebuilt city of Jerusalem. Uh, one scholar, Sir Robert Anderson, who uh, probably wrote the definitive uh, content on this this event um, calculated that uh, the prediction of of Daniel chapter 9 um, was 173,880 days after a decree went out to uh, free the Jewish people to go back into Jerusalem. And uh, if you look at that prediction and begin to see the kinds of things that are said. It, it's just an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. So that was, that was sort of the environment in which Palm Sunday transpired. Jesus arrived in Bethany, ate a meal and spent some time with people that he loved and was very close to. Uh, the next morning, Sunday, he made his way to the Mount of Olives, made preparation to be able to enter the city and uh, went down that road, descended into the city to the, uh, to the praise and worship of his followers. And uh, in the process, uh, grieved and wept over that city because it was about to reject him as their Messiah. And in the process also gave uh, incredible detail to what, uh, what would happen to that city and it happened 38 years later. Well, I just want to look at three implications of, of the, uh, the experience that Jesus had and his followers had on Palm Sunday. Um, the first one is this, that Jesus is worshipped for the miracles that he had, they had seen him do. Luke 19.37 says that... Uh, that part of what was, uh, was driving this desire to worship Christ was uh, the things that they had seen him do, his miraculous uh, involvement in their, in their lives. Uh, from that, uh, that devotional guide that I mentioned to you earlier, uh, we read these words, The crowd praised God for Jesus' mighty works. He had healed leprosy with a touch. He had made blind the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. 
He had commanded the unclean spirits and they obeyed him. He had stilled the storms and walked on water and turned five loaves and two fishes into a meal for thousands. Actually, at the end of the day, at the end of Palm Sunday, uh, just before Jesus was going to return to Bethany to spend the night, he went into the temple, walked around, observed the things that he would subsequently address in his cleansing of the temple. Um, And part of what he did there was to heal blind and lame folks that were at the temple when he was there. And so the the crowd was, uh, was worshiping him because of the miracles that they'd seen him do. Not the least of which was that he was there with Lazarus. And they, uh, Lazarus and his experience was, uh, was being talked about, as you can imagine. And uh, in fact, when, when a group of folks came out on uh, Saturday to Bethany, to see Jesus, they came out really to see Jesus and Lazarus. <laughs> they wanted to see this person that uh, it was being reported Jesus had raised from the dead. So a part of the worship of, uh, of Palm Sunday, historically, is a, uh, is a heart from people who had seen Christ do miraculous things. Uh, they wanted to worship him. Um, so my question is for you and for me, um, what miracles has Jesus performed in your life or through your life that encourage you to worship him? Uh, we serve a supernatural God. He's a God who, uh, the scriptures tell us was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't go out of the miracle business, uh, after having done so much years ago. Uh, he still is, is working in a miraculous way in the lives of those who know him and love him. Uh, one thing that might not come to mind immediately, but I trust if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then the, the scriptures tell us that the same power that was needed to resurrect Jesus from the dead was needed to uh, affect a surrender in your heart so that you could come into life in Christ. Your salvation is the greatest miracle that you will ever experience. There won't be another one that will rival that, uh, that conquering of your heart and that drawing of you into life with Christ. There won't be another miracle that God could do. We, we tend to look at miracles as the flashy dramatic, uh, overtly supernatural things that might happen. And yet at the core of all miracles is the the singular, most substantive and significant miracle. And that is that Jesus has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his, His Son. That God has transferred you into the kingdom of His Son through having come to know Christ in a personal way. So uh, part of Palm Sunday, part of the, the thing that, uh, that ought to, to challenge our hearts this morning is to recognize that uh, they worshipped Jesus on that day because they had been the observers and even the recipients of his miraculous power. And God still 
is in that kind of business. Not only in your salvation, but in other ways, in his daily provision and in the fact that he continues to heal. You know, what am I trusting him for today? What am I anticipating and looking for him to do in my life that is not just natural and can be explained away or explained on on purely human terms? There ought to be something that God is about in your life and mine that uh, is another indication of how powerful he is. The second aspect of uh, Palm Sunday that I wanted us just to think about for a minute is, uh, is Jesus was worshipped as a king whose kingdom was universal and never-ending. You know, as he made that descent from the Mount of Olives down into the city of Jerusalem, um, he knew that there was already uh, uh, in place a plan to arrest him. He knew what, uh, what he anticipated in terms of, of uh, his, his suffering and his death. And so as he, as a king, presenting a kingdom, as he entered into Jerusalem... Uh, what appeared to threaten his rule and end his kingdom, his death, was not a failure, but it was fulfillment. If you read, and I put passages down there, if you read Acts 2, 22 through 24, uh, the writer of Acts, Luke, says to these very people who were involved in the death of Christ, you know, you put him to death, but... What you did was part of God's predetermined plan. You didn't take God by surprise. God wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, surprised by the response of the Jewish people to Christ uh, offering himself as their Messiah. Uh, throughout the New Testament, there is, there is constant uh, perspective on the fact that, uh, that what men did was what God had planned. And so we, we worship a God who, who takes even the, the most, uh, in the, in the most uh, potentially discouraging and difficult and, uh, and kind of hope-shattering realities. He takes those and, and he, he turns them to what is harmonizing with his purpose and his plans. You know, when Paul said in Romans, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Now, that's, that's really true. And it doesn't matter what's going on. God is at work to further his kingdom in your life and through your life and through his church. Uh, so often what, uh, what appears to be threatening, what appears to be sabotaging, what appears to be just so uh, disturbing and difficult and discouraging. Um, that, that doesn't set aside the fact that God is at work sovereignly and providentially to accomplish his purposes in our lives. And so I just ask the question, in what ways is Jesus your king and his kingdom your central concern? Does he reign and rule 
in your life, even in, in the face of what might seem as though uh, he, in fact, is, uh, is not going to be able to do what he promises to do. And we all live in that tension of what God is and what he promises and what we actually experience. But between us and who he is, is a confidence that he is a king, that his kingdom is universal and it'll never end. The third thing I wanted to just bring to our attention as we, uh, as we think about Palm Sunday is uh, they worship Jesus as one who could not be successfully resisted. Uh, one of the things that Luke says when... Uh, when the religious leaders came to Jesus as he was making his descent from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem and, and his followers were proclaiming him a king and a Messiah and talking about his kingdom, well, that was very threatening to the Jewish leaders. And they came to Jesus and they uh, demanded that he silence these, these followers. They demanded that he, uh, that he tell them to, to cease and desist in, in their worship of him, in their exclamation of who he was. And Jesus said something very significant. He said, you know, if, uh, if these people were muted, the stones that are, that are lying about would, would shout out the same message. The, the stones, if, if, if people ceased... To, uh, to proclaim who Christ was, the very stones would shout it out. Um, and I was thinking about the kinds of things in your life and in mine that, uh, that appear to threaten Jesus' will from being carried out. The things that, uh, that discourage us, that, uh, that are so difficult and uh, complex. Um, we've got a presidential election coming up. Uh, I don't know when an election has, has been as complicated and complex to think through and figure out and discern how to respond to as this one. And yet, um, nothing is going to successfully resist God's plan and God's purposes. Uh, our culture is, is being dismantled it, it's always painful to watch something die. And we're watching a culture die as it embraces and as it articulates and avows uh, perspectives on a variety of, of things in life that, uh, that are antithetic to God's heart and His will and His purpose. I mean, it's painful to watch a, a culture uh, just implode, and yet nothing that is happening, nothing that is happening can uh, successfully resist God's intentions and His purposes. Uh, you know, radical violence and profound human suffering uh, abroad and even in this country, uh, those things shake us and uh, prompt us to think, you know, is God really in charge? Can he really extricate us from, from this kind of environment? Uh, 
and yet uh, central to the whole message of, of Palm Sunday is uh, people who were worshiping a king and uh, aligning themselves with a kingdom that at the moment, at the moment, seemed very vulnerable. <laughs> it seemed very uh, open to being squashed and, and uh, eliminated. If you can imagine just stepping back from that scene and knowing what we know about what Jesus would, uh, would experience, um, everything within us would, uh, would say, well, it's over. Um, God has lost and Jesus has failed. And yet the very opposite was resoundingly true. It was all part of God's plan and his purpose. And the result was glorious because the result was that folks like you and I have experienced that singular miracle today. If we've come and given our lives to Christ and entered into life with him, that miracle that, uh, that rivals his resurrection in what it uh, took God to accomplish. And so I, I just want to encourage you on this Palm Sunday to, uh, to reflect on the events of this day and to recognize that the, the focus of this day was the worship of the king. And he was a king in spite of, of all indications to the contrary who would reign and whose kingdom would last forever. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for 30 chapters in the biographies of Jesus that, uh, that focus in great detail on, uh, on a few days at the end of the life of Christ. And I thank you, Father, that uh, that focus, particularly on, the, on this Palm Sunday, that focus draws us to, uh, to worship a God who is sovereign, who is uh, providential, whose plans and whose purposes are simply not negotiable or, uh, or undermined by whatever the realities are that we might see around us. Thank you that... Uh, Lord Jesus, you have a plan and a purpose for human history. And there's nothing that's going to derail that. And we worship you today as, as your followers did on that day. As a king whose kingdom is going to last forever and whose subjects we are. We just worship you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say the benediction. I'm going to come this morning from Romans chapter 8. Verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go in peace.